0: good afternoon colleagues um, I want to welcome you all to the Boston Bar Association and the consumer bankruptcy committee's uh, webinar on the new Massachusetts General law chapter 188 homestead statute which passed and became effective in early November of 2022 with little fanfare uh, much to many of our surprise many many of us who were surprised by that. So um, with limited time, I just want to get right to the introduction of our esteemed panelists. And uh, on behalf of the Consumer Bankruptcy Committee, which I co-chair with Jacob Simon, I just want to thank personally uh, our panelists, Stephanie Pelton and Kate Nicholson. Um, Stephanie uh, is an associate at Madoff and Corey in Foxborough, Massachusetts, Her practice focuses on advising clients regarding bankruptcy issues uh, and bankruptcy law. She also serves as counsel to Dave Madoff, who many of us know, in his capacities as both Chapter 7 trustee and a sub-Chapter 5, Chapter 11 trustee. Um, She she routinely handles bankruptcy-related litigation in both federal and state courts, and she's a graduate uh, of... uh, of Suffolk University Law School in 2006. Uh, Kate Nicholson, uh, who I've known for a long time, used to be a neighbor of hers in Somerville. She's the sole shareholder of Nicholson PC in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, She represents individuals, small businesses, and trustees in all varieties of bankruptcy matters. She's a member of the ABI, the BBA, I'm sorry, the the abi bba and she's serving as the co-chair of another bankruptcy uh, section committee on public uh, on public service she was named uh, one of the top 40 under bankruptcy professionals uh, for uh, in, for the abi and she's written many articles and educational materials for norton annual survey of bankruptcy law the bba mcle and the abi she's taught she also has taught legal research and writing at BU School of Law for several years, and she's a graduate of uh, Harvard Law School. So let me pass the baton to Stephanie right away. And my final comment is that I'm going to be monitoring uh, the Q&A. So um, if you have any questions, just send them and we'll try to uh, keep this as a uh, ongoing discussion as best we can. But uh, have been warned that there are more questions than answers. So Let's uh, let's let's pass it to Stephanie at this point. Thank you.
1: Thanks, John. Um, yeah. So as John said, um, these changes to the Massachusetts Homestead Law got sort of rolled out without a lot of fanfare. Uh, they became effective on November eighth. Uh, they were packaged into a, an IT bond bill um, that, as far as I can tell, didn't have anything to do with homestead, but it got signed into law with these homestead amendments as part of it. Uh, So you can find these amendments um, at uh, chapter 175, uh, the acts of 2022, there are sections 30A uh, through 30G. Um, And I think Kate, we were gonna talk a little bit about, um, you know, how this this came about and maybe some of the more, you know, the less explosive. provisions uh, that are involved in these amendments. Thanks. Um,
2: so hi everyone, thank you for being here. Um, I wanna reiterate, please use the Q and A. Um, this is you know, a brand new law. We don't have any like particular expertise in it. We just we're asked to read it and tell you what we think. So that's what we're gonna do. Um, but please do chime in um, and we'll try and make this kind of as interactive as this format can be. Um, so I, I'm going to just kind of highlight some of the maybe less, con- uh, consequential, um, amendments to the statute. Um, we, Stephanie prepared a red line, which is really, um, helpful. I'm going to share my screen just to help people kind of understand the changes that were made to the statute. Um, so the first change I'll talk about is that um, mistake was removed from the exceptions to the Homestead exemption. So if you look down here at number six, right, it used to be that um, a Homestead didn't protect against a judgment from fraud, mistake, duress, undue influence, or lack of capacity. and um, mistake has been removed. So that's, I think, a reasonable change, not too controversial. Um, another change that we see here, and these are terminations, we don't wanna talk about that yet. Um, the change in the definition of an owner. So unsurprisingly, and I think as we all expected, the statute now includes remaindermen as owners, who are entitled to claim a homestead exemption. And this is of you know, was regarded as an omission um, from the original statute. Uh, I did spend some time talking to one of the drafters of the original statute and these amendments, and she, you know, it was her position that. Um, Remaindermen didn't need to be added to the statute because they're the vested owner or subject to a life estate. But as we know, the case law did not develop that way. So we've got remaindermen in there now, and also um, lessee shareholders of a residential co op. So those two categories of owners are now entitled to uh, the benefit of the homestead exemption. Um, another change in the definition of owner is, I think maybe more consequential, and that is the change to what kind of trust beneficiaries are entitled to a homestead exemption. So here uh, you'll see the holder, it used to be the holder of a beneficial interest in a trust, and that has been narrowed. And now we have the holder of a present vested and non-contingent beneficial interest in a trust. And I think this is you know, it doesn't come up too often, but it could be um, pretty significant because this is saying that um, if you have a, you know, a contingent interest in a trust, that interest does become property of the bankruptcy estate, but you're not entitled to claim an exemption in it. And even if you're
1: living there, apparently.
2: Yeah. Right. Even if you're living in the house that's in a trust and you have a you know, a future contingent interest in the trust, maybe someone has to die or something, you know, but but you have this interest that is part of the bankruptcy estate. I believe that this change in connection with the snapshot rule would mean that if your interest became vested after your bankruptcy case was filed, I'm not sure that that person would be entitled to claim a homestead. Um, and if somebody has thoughts on that, uh, please put them in the Q and A. Um, but just thinking about it, I mean, you know, we'll see if if this case if this case arises. But the the um, you know, it's kind of like yeah, something like uh, the value of something increases during the pendency of the case, and that value goes to the bankruptcy estate. And I'm not sure.
0: Would it be safe, Kate, to assume that the non-contingent beneficial interest is referring to the difference between revocable and irrevocable trusts?
2: You know, I'm not I'm not sure Um, something else that's that's useful. uh, So these these amendments were drafted by the Real Estate Bar Association, by REBA, and this statute was kind of put forward by REBA. and they prepared a summary that uh, the representative Brian Murray sent to me that details what each amendment was supposed to accomplish and they all reference a case that they thought was you know the wrong was the wrong outcome and in the case that they're talking about the case that they were trying to change the outcome of for this non contingent interest was um, somebody who would become the owner of the property when somebody else died through the trust, right? The first level of beneficiary was the grantor. It was like a living trust or something like that. And when the grantor or the set lord died, that person would become the beneficiary the beneficiary of the trust and therefore the owner of the property. right? And that was a contingent interest in a trust. So if that person died after the case was filed, I don't know if that person would be entitled to a homestead protection. Does anybody have thoughts on that? I don't see anybody in the chat. So we'll see, it's something to be aware of. So those are the changes to um, the definition of owner. Uh, Another change that was made to the statute, let's see here. Oh, sorry, I'm going the wrong way not trying to make anyone dizzy here. Um, uh, There was a a case that very narrowly construed this language in section 11 of uh, the homestead statute that protects proceeds of a homestead, right? This is the section that protects proceeds for up to a year, or insurance proceeds, that kind of thing. And the language prior had said, the proceeds received on account of any sale. And there is a case that denied a debtor the homestead exemption because the proceeds were made over to the court in an interpleader, right? So the debtor had not yet received the proceeds and the statute was interpreted that the debtor was not entitled to receive, was not entitled to the homestead exemption because they had not received the proceeds. And so they removed this language to make clear that the proceeds of a homestead, wherever they might travel, if they haven't gotten to the debtor yet, if they're in an escrow account, wherever they are, they are um, debtors exempt homestead proceeds. That seems like a reasonable change to me. another change here we'll talk about this later <laughs> um let's see oh it, I'm sorry it is in the termination section well the the termination of a state of a of homestead uh they added five new ways to terminate a homestead and I when I was speaking with the uh, Rebo representative, Their primary concern in adding these was for a conveyancing practice, right? It had become difficult with the automatic homestead to know if there was a non-titled spouse who had some claim to a property and they weren't. Conveyancing became, you know, a lot of attorneys were asking um, sellers to make all these representations or to, you know. A test that they had no homestead rights at all. And um, so the, the idea of these changes to the termination part of the statute was to um, allow conveyancing to be easier and to allow people to rely on the records of the registry of deeds. You don't need to have any kind of extraneous information in order to be confident that you're not acquiring a property subject to somebody else's homestead rights. Um, So we'll talk about those changes after this, but I do just want to highlight that one of the changes to the termination section up here um, at A1 is that um, here it says a deed to a non-family member terminates it. Um, However, a deed to a trust a deed to a trustee of a trust for the benefit of a grantor shall not terminate the grantor's homestead, right? So if you own property and you put it into a trust and you're the beneficiary of the trust, your homestead is continues to be valid. So that's a change they made. The transfer, there was already a change um, from the 2011 amendments that the transfer between family members did not terminate a homestead. Now they're adding that the transfer to a trust of which the grantor is the beneficiary, also does not terminate the homestead. And then we um, will go down here. The, these are the other ways to terminate a homestead. And again, the idea behind these was that um, it would make conveyancing easier, right? Um, the statute provides that a bona fide purchaser can rely on these records. I'm actually going to change my screen share here because there's a just an easier way. So these are the additional methods to terminate uh, or release the homestead, right? So that's another thing that's a little bit maybe imprecise or maybe like troublesome to me about this part of the statute is that the statute heading is termination of a state of homestead during lifetime, right? But then when we talk about these, it's really not, it's, so I think what's important is the termination of the estate of homestead, which would be the interest in the real estate, but not a termination of the homestead exemption, right? So we wanna be able to differentiate between whether someone is claiming a homestead right in the property versus sale proceeds for instance Um, and this is something that i think is not 100 clear in the statute Um, and i wouldn't be surprised if we see some some litigation about it given these additional ways to terminate homestead that are provided here Um, most of them are pretty simple right a deed containing a recitation that the grantor is unmarried a deed containing a recitation that the property is not a home, a deed containing a recitation that the property is not the grantor's home, right? Again, all of these things are to establish that there's no homestead, kind of latent homestead rights in the property. And then there are a couple here I want to flag, a deed containing a statement certified under the penalties of perjury that there is no spouse or former spouse entitled to an estate of homestead. Um, And then again, Certified under the pains and penalties of perjury, the property is not the home of the grantor's spouse or former spouse. So there are certain circumstances in which the deed will need to be signed under the pains and penalties of perjury in order to provide that kind of bona fide purchaser constructive notice um, assurance that uh, the statute is designed to provide. So for anyone out there who does conveyancing, pay attention. Uh, And then finally, this is the one that's like, wait, what? (laughs) Uh, A divorce judgment or decree granting ownership to the other spouse or not giving the non-owner title or possessory rights releases the homestead. That's the language of the statute and we can go back and look at that exactly. shall release the homestead of a spouse who is required to convey title to the home to the other spouse, or who is not an owner of the home and was not awarded title or possessory rights. So it seems to me and Stephanie and John, I encourage you to chime in here if you also have thoughts about this, that um, the this provision provides for an automatic release of a homestead upon an act of the probate court, right? So the probate court enters the decree that says, you know, person A, you have to transfer the property to person B, person A's homestead estate is released. What exactly that means, I don't know, but it certainly doesn't mean that that person's not living in the property anymore. And it certainly doesn't mean that like, if they're being bought out that they received the consideration for, you know, it's just, it just seems a little bit like blunt to me. And I anticipate there might be some,
1: you know, a divorce decree can say a lot of things and people don't do it. Yeah. Another question I was sort of wondering about was what would be the, the operative release date You know, is it the the date the judgment enters is when it becomes final, non-appealable, like, you know, when it it, as of what date is it released? Um, And again, you know, I I think you touched on it, but to to what extent is it being released? Um, I think it's sort of, you know. This, this provision assumes that, you know, you have sort of a cookie cutter divorce where everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing when they're supposed to be doing it. You know, certainly now we've seen situations where you have people who are fully divorced, but for certain reasons are still living in the house. Um, so, you know, and I think Kate, you, you brought up a good point about, you know, what about a ch- in a chapter 13 case where you know this is a part of a property settlement. You're you know if you're trying to to discharge it as a property settlement, but then you've got this language that says it's been released. What you know what does that mean? Right. Can you like record another one?
2: <laughs> you know, like I don't.
1: It, does it relate it's like back
2: if you do? Uh, yeah. But could you get another one or you know? So a situation that I imagine is this divorce judgment enters. The property hasn't been transferred yet and and the person who's supposed to transfer the property and maybe like get consideration for the property files bankruptcy are those proceeds that the person is entitled to receive under the divorce agreement exempt since the the statute kind of automatically releases the the homestead upon the the
1: decree. Right. And, and normally and it doesn't.
2: I don't know. That's the way I read it.
1: <laughs> but right. well, you know. in in that situation, you know, if you you have the, you know, spouse A who was the titled spouse and who was supposed to convey it and then didn't and then they, have you know, they filed a bankruptcy, if they want to assert an exemption, you know, whose exemption are they asserting? Is right. it is it theirs? Um, you know, because also under other provisions of the homestead statute an ex-spouse is not included in the definition of a family member. So if the divorce is final, then your ex-spouse is is not a family member. So, uh, you know, I I don't know who's who's entitled to claim that exemption and and to what extent. That's confusing to me. I don't know.
2: So I think, you know, of the I think that of the amendments that I've just kind of gone over very briefly here, um, I think the limitation on the exemption for the trust beneficiary and the seemingly kind of automatic release of the homestead in the context of a divorce are going to be two areas where we will need further guidance from the courts. So, and then kind of what in our discussions we decided are the the most significant change to the homestead law um, is a change in how the homestead exemption can be allocated among tenants in common or trust beneficiaries. Um, So uh, Stephanie is going to talk about that. Everybody should get out their calculators. Um, but I just want to just say quickly that based on kind of the conversations I've had with people about this law and, um, and the Reba summary describing what the intent of the, um, the changes, it seems like it may have been an error. Like the change was made that that they weren't intending. I'm not. I'm not sure. So, we'll just have to kind of um, figure out where to go from here. Stephanie.
1: Um, okay. So, yeah, i I think um, no. I'll put it up here when I'm talking about. Um. So, to me. Sort of the biggest bombshell here um, was the change that they made to how the homestead exemption gets allocated, as Keith said. I think it's really interesting that with respect to the automatic homestead exemption, they left it unchanged. So um, here, you know, with respect to homes that are owned by multiple owners as tenants of common trust beneficiaries, the automatic homestead exemption is allocated among owners in proportion to their ownership interest. So the homestead is based on ownership, not occupancy. And we get down here to the declared homestead exemption, which used to provide you know that if you know a home is owned by tenants in common or trust beneficiaries, uh, the homestead that they were entitled to would be the product of five hundred thousand dollars and the co-tenor trust beneficiaries percentage ownership interest. So it it was the same as with the automatic. Now it says that their homestead is going to be the product of five hundred thousand dollars divided by. Uh, the number of co-tenants or trust beneficiaries who reside in the home as a principal residence. So here we have the homestead being allocated not um, according to ownership but occupancy. So it's, it you know seems like we have two different rules here. Um, well, we do have two different rules here now, and I think um, that you know. One of the things that may potentially change going forward because of this is that there will be, you know, more litigation that is centered on um, who's living in a home at a particular point in time. Um, you know, what, under what circumstances are they living there? What are their intentions? Um, I know my my own practice when I have debtors come in, and you know, we're talking about what could potentially happen. And I tell them, you know, okay, it's possible that the trustee is going to want to see a copy of your mom's will or is going to want to talk to your brother about that loan you repaid him last year. Um, and you know, they are always loath to sort of implicate family members in this process. And so I think now one of the things that will come up when when you're talking to people, if if they have a you know an interest of the home they're living in, they they own, you know, as a trust beneficiary, they have sort of these unequal ownership interests is that, you know, you may have to tell them, the trustee may wanna to talk to these other owners and find out from them who, who's living there. Um, Cause you can see that, you know, people trying to game the system. If your homestead exemption is going to be diluted by the fact that there are other, um, you know, trust beneficiaries, you know, co-tenants living there, then, you know, maybe somebody moves out, you know, for a period of time. Um, And so I think there may be sort of a more searching inquiry into, you know, not only who's living there, but who intends to live there, because that's, you know, a very gray area before when, you know, when we're talking about looking at ownership interests and the, the homestead is based on, you know, ownership, not occupancy. There's a little bit of gray area, but usually it's spelled out in a deed or it's spelled out in a trust document. And, it, you know, it's easy to tell what the ownership interests are. It's not so easy to tell who necessarily is residing or who intends to be residing in property. So, um, you know, I think I think that could um, potentially, you know, be an issue. Uh, I the other.
0: yeah, We have a couple of questions uh, on that. Stephanie, if I could interject for a moment. Um, we had talked about the, the the word product as multiply as a as a indicator of multiplication, but yet it talks about yet the statute says dividing. Um, so there's a question of how do you have a product of 500 divided by a number? Um, that that's a question that we don't have the answer to, right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a question we had. same question I had. But, you know, it it says what it said. I think, you know, and and I think that some of the materials that um, that they've put out, Reba's put out, suggests that, you know, we're supposed to be dividing, not multiplying anymore, at least with respect to allocating this uh, declared exemption.
0: And then Judge Boroff asked the question about the whether whether or not Reba had discussed these amendments with the BBA, with the BBA uh, steering committee and we again talked about that. And I can think I think the answer is no. Um, it came, that's why it came as such a surprise to so many of us.
1: Well and I think, you know, one of one of the things that sort of came out of this was when they were talking about, you know, they being, you know, the legislator, the people who sort of made these changes. Um, they sort of zeroed into on the uh, Van Bueskirk decision and said, you know, they, in that case, they allocated the homestead incorrectly. They they allocated it based on ownership instead of occupancy. But that that case dealt with the automatic homestead exemption, which they've left unchanged. So to the extent that they were trying to address the problem cre- created by um, Van Bueskirk, you know, that case uh, would not have been decided differently under the statute as amended, because again, they left that, you know, the allocation of the automatic homestead unchanged.
2: I mean, I think that's a really important point, Stephanie, is that there are now like two very different ways of calculating the homestead, the amount of homestead exemption for tenants in common and trust beneficiaries, depending on whether it's an automatic or a declared. Um, So the automatic homestead is divided among all owners, regardless, as Stephanie said earlier, regardless of whether they live in the property. And now here with the trust beneficiaries, we have it divided among those who reside in the property, but not in proportion, it used to be a proportional If you had a 90% interest, you got 90% of the homestead. And now it's, you know, if you had 90% and someone else had 10%. Stephanie, what
1: happens? (laughs) So um, this, I I can't hold numbers in my head. So I love my spreadsheet. So um, Mm -hmm. trying to work this out. And and I will say, um, you know, this, this, we're assuming we have a house, it's owned, it's tenants in common, it's worth a million dollars. That we have these people, siblings um, who have these, you know, sort of unequal ownership interests. Uh, and I will say that, you know, this is this is sort of loosely based on an actual, you know, trustee case we had where, you know, it, there were these five siblings who inherited this house and and they had unequal ownership interests. And at any given time, at least three of them, you know, appeared to have been living there, but they all sort of cycled in and out. But in any way in any event. So let's say we have a house that's worth a million dollars. These are the owners, these are their these are their percentage interests. So this is the the value of their interest in the absence of liens. So the way that the declared homestead was calculated before the amendments, you know, when we are di- you know dividing by percentage ownership, th- these this is these are the exemptions that that these prospective owners would would have been entitled to now the the extent to which they are entitled to uh, you know a, a homestead is dependent on who else is living there with them so you can see for these these people down here who have sort of these smaller interests this works out great for them because you know they go from being limited to you know five thousand twenty thousand to you know at a minimum, even if all five of them are living there, they get a hundred thousand. Um, you know, but when you get up here to these people who have sort of the the larger ownership interest, their exemptions get diluted until you know the point where people start moving out. Um, the, the person who's going to have the most trouble here is, is this person who's got the sort of fifty percent ownership interest because in order to get back to to where they were with their two hundred and fifty thousand dollars exemption under you know the prior to these amendments, they got to be living there with only one other person. But um, if there are, you know two, three other people living there with them, then the value of of their homestead exemption goes down as you can see you know if if this person is is the only person living there then that it works out for all of them in that case but um you know you you do have the potential here for people who to you know have the value of their declared homestead diluted and and again i think this is where we're going to have some issues with people really doing more sort of searching investigations into who exactly is living there, living in the home. Um, And I think the uh, the other area where this is going to be kind of a big deal in in bankruptcy is uh, the lien avoidance analysis Uh, because under section 522 of the code, it says the debtor can avoid the fixing of a judicial lien on an interest in property to the extent that it impairs an exemption to which the debtor would have been entitled. And the lien is considered to impair the exemption to the extent that the sum of the lien, all other liens on the property and the amount of the exemption that the debtor could uh, claim if there were no liens on the property exceeds the value of the debtor's interest on the property. So I tried to um, play this out here a little bit. So this example, we've got our same sort of five siblings here And let's say that you know they get they acquire titles, tenants in common, homes worth a million. Say there was a pre existing reverse mortgage of of 200,000. So Adrian here lives in the property, records a declaration of homestead, and then a creditor gets a judicial lien of sixty thousand dollars. So Adrian files a chapter seven, asserts the, the homestead declared homestead exemption, seeks to avoid the lien. So prior to the amendments, this is what the 522 analysis would sort of look like. So we have the value of the judicial lien, that you know um, first mortgage that's there, that consensual lien. And then this would have been the value of the homestead prior to the amendments, 250,000. So as a 50% owner, You know, their ownership interest is worth $500,000, so it exceeds that. So the the lien would have been avoidable to the extent of $10,000. After the amendments, this is what it starts to look like. So let's say all five siblings are living in the property. So here we go from Adrian having a a $250,000 exemption to $100,000 exemption, can't avoid the lien. Um, there are four of them living there, and Adrian's only got one hundred twenty-five thousand dollar exemption. Can't avoid the lien. Three of them living there again, can't can't avoid it. Get back to the point. You know, it can only be Adrian and one other person living there to get to the same result they would have had. You know, prior to the amendments, and then if Adrian alone lives in the property. Then the lien is entirely avoidable. Um, I, I will digress here for one, one minute to say that, you know, there is some first circuit precedent that says when co-owners have, um, asymmetrical, asymmetrical ownership interests, um, that the court may deviate from, uh, strict application of the uh 522 formula uh in order to avoid an inequitable result. Um that deviation usually works in, in favor of a creditor who is you know objecting to their lien being avoided. So you know most of the time the debtors are going to want you know a strict application of section you know 522. Um then let's see what happens at the other end of the spectrum. So now um, we have Eli. So this is the person that's only got the 1% interest. So it's worth, you know, $10,000. There are no liens this time. So Eli lives in the property, Cords a homestead, a creditor gets a, a $2,000 judicial lien. Eli files seven. Uh, so it's a homestead exemption seeks to avoid the lien. So this is this is what the calculation under Section five twenty two would have looked like prior to the amendments. This lien would not have been avoidable uh, after these amendments. Uh, even if all five siblings are living in the property, the lien is entirely avoidable because Eli goes from being limited to a five thousand dollar homestead to getting a a ten thousand dollar homestead. Uh, so, you know, that's a pretty sort of dramatic difference. And I think, you know, it, it also, um, it, you know, it it changes the analysis of, of, you know, some of these cases that we have that says, you know, debtors are not entitled to an exemption in property that they don't own. So here, this would mm-hmm. almost appear as though, um, you know, these homesteads are are reaching to cover um, equity in the property that that this you know that this particular beneficiary doesn't actually own because now we're focusing on possession in, in, instead of ownership.
0: Seems like there's some unintended consequences to not talking to bankruptcy attorneys before the statute is passed.
1: Yeah. Um and I think you know there also may be some um implications for you know trustees who are looking to sell property um you know under 363 H <laughs> that, is that- lucky if there's a lien
2: on your property
1: <laughs> <laughs> because the
2: execution creditor is not going to probably try and sell it. Yeah, but a bankruptcy trustee certainly will.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So yeah. if you have a diminished homestead exemption due to the change in the law. Um, you know, you own 90% of the property, but you get half of the homestead. Um, you know, you might, be in you might be in
1: trouble. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, if, if I've got my sort of trustee hat on, I think this opens the door for, you know, trustees to sort of take a run at um, property interests that you know they they maybe wouldn't have looked at before. And again, you know, this could involve any level of litigation that focuses on who's actually living there. Because if that's if that's what the focus is on, then yeah, you know, that's that's a harder thing to, to prove than if you've got a, you know a deed or or a trust that just spells out the the interests and, and that's what we're going with.
0: So, you could envision a circumstance, could you not, that a debtor who comes to see one of our debtors' colleagues or ourselves that even though they qualify for the uh, the non-automatic homestead, the declared homestead, they may want to opt into the automatic homestead. Could you foresee a circumstance like that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, can I off the top of my head you know, come up with that scenario? No, but you know, we all see some some crazy things and, and inevitably there will be that one weird scenario where, you know, yeah, you, you may wanna forego a declared exemption if, if it's going to be too diluted. And and go with an automatic exemption potentially. I mean, this is all this is all guessing at you know at what's going to ha- to happen here. Um, but you know, I think that to the extent that that these amendments to the homestead were sort of billed as you know, technical corrections and clarifications, I think that's probably true. If you if you're a title attorney, but for bankruptcy practice, I think. You know these are are substantive changes, really, and they call into question some some cases. Um, you know, some precedent that, that even if we didn't really like the outcome, it was settled. We knew what to expect, and now you know we're just, we're just going to have to tread carefully until, until we see how these new provisions are are being interpreted, being applied. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point.
2: Like, at least we knew <laughs> what protection was available. Now it, it seems like it's up in the air again, at least, you know, in some situations with trust beneficiaries and, and tenants in common. Um,
0: so there's a few open questions, um, I'll, I'll I'll go through, we can go through them pretty quickly. Are uh, dependents, children and others counted towards the number of tenants to be counted?
2: Um, no, the the tenants we're talking about are like tenants in common, right? People who have an I, I yeah, people it. on the on title or who have a beneficial interest in a trust.
0: Uh, next one: Can a homestead be declared on a home that is titled in a nominee trust, where the beneficiaries are two or more revocable trusts? All right.
1: Uh, well, I think. That sort of goes back to um, the contingent future interest thing, right? That that piece of it. I think before, um, you know, which case was it? Was it In re Newcom or? Um,
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. But those, you know, they, you know, downstream trusts where, you know, the, the debtors had sort of contingent future interests and they said, well, they're trust beneficiaries. So, yeah, they're, they're included in the definition of owner, but now that they have been expressly excluded from the definition of owner, I think the answer to that question is, you know, different now. Probably no, if it's, if it's revocable. I mean, I don't do trust. Work, you know, so it, it backs you know case to case, but I'd say maybe not. No, I mean, is
2: is the rev? I don't, I don't, I also don't know enough about trust, but I don't. Is an interest in a revocable trust necessarily contingent? I think not. I think it would depend on what the the language the trust language, yeah. said, right. Even if the trust is revocable, if under that trust you have a present vested. Interest. I mean, but that's another question that you can certainly imagine being litigated.
0: Uh, Amy Lippman White says that the REBA disagrees that you can stack elderly homesteads up to a million. And uh, the bankruptcy court, it's less a question than a statement that she says that the bankruptcy court disagrees with that interpretation. Um, any comments on that? <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: you
2: can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. I think
1: uh, you know. I, I think the well, the one thing about that though is you know if if you go back and look at the um the definition of the I don't know if I can bring it up again the uh, declared um, homestead. Where they're, you know, it's this, but then you get down here and it's talking about, you know. The elderly homestead is calculated in one manner, and then the declared homestead is calculated in another, in another manner. Um, I, I I can't do that math, but, you know, I think it it didn't. In my mind, it didn't change the fact that there is some level of stacking that's allowed when, you you know, an elderly or disabled homestead is implicated.
2: Isn't it there, like, small Roman numeral two, if the home is owned by joint tenants or tenants by the entirety, the declared homestead exemption shall be the sum of $500,000 multiplied by the number of declarations recorded pursuant to section two. Mm -hmm. There's two elderly homesteads you... Take five hundred thousand dollars times two,
1: plus two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's you get you get an even bigger homestead.
2: Yeah. But what do I know?
0: I think that's I think that's a fair interpretation, and and that's um, that's what we've been operating on from with elderly uh, for a while now. Yeah.
1: And they you know if if they thought that that the bankruptcy court was um, you know interpreting that section wrongly, I mean they didn't they didn't make any changes to that. That's true. they they changed other sections. I don't but they didn't change that. So I don't know it's a mystery.
0: we have any other questions? Uh, I think, uh, Caitlin, uh, are we able to share the 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 um, the red line that Stephanie prepared for the statute? Um, somebody was asking for the sharing of the materials after yeah, this.
1: I can share out the materials.
0: Okay. Great. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if there's nothing else and no further questions, are we ready to wrap it up?
0: Um, I do want to mention uh, just um, the uh, we have an upcoming program on January 18th. Uh, what they what we used to call brown bag. I don't know if we're calling that calling it that anymore. Uh, or lunch bunch, but it's it's later a little bit later than typical. It's 1:30 to 2:30 with Judge Bostwick on January 18th, um, and um, those are usually pretty informative for us practitioners. So please uh, attend. Uh, I see one more comment from Don Lastman. He believes that the elderly is 1 million, not 1.25, as as the rest of the statute says, no individual exemption can exceed 500,000. I believe that's right.
2: Well, can I say something about that? Sure. I mean, I've never pressed this, but... um... And I've never seen a homestead exemption allowed in excess of a million dollars. But the statute does say provided further that, that no owner who declares a homestead acting individually shall be entitled to claim an exemption of more than $500,000. So I wonder if in a joint case, two elderly debtors could get that extra $250,000. Or else, Why is it there? Yeah
0: thinking outside the box
2: Kate <laughs> very good <laughs> just a little Thank bit like, we just did this right <laughs> 10 years ago
0: i think after we get some case law this will be an mcl i mean not an mcle but this will be a uh, a longer a longer webinar uh, you know and it won't take long i suspect to have some case law
1: yeah. Well, you know, I, I just in closing, I I will say, you know, we, we have in the past had bankruptcy judges, you know, refer to this homestead statute. I think it was a uh, Retired Judge uh, Hoffman just described it as a, a statute of teeth cracking at complexity. Um, the late Judge Hillman called it a complicated web of defined terms and cross references. And I, I don't think these, you know, uh, amendments did really much to, to fix that. <laughs> uh, for sure. I think that's true. And
2: I also think it's great that remaindermen are able to declare Homestead now and, um, you know, lessee shareholders. So there are also some good necessary changes that were made. um, And we'll see how the rest of it plays out. Well,
0: thank you, Kate and Stephanie and Caitlin, appreciate all of you. And thank you to the attendees as well for participating. Thank and you. Thank you on behalf of the everyone.
1: Thank you. Bye everyone. Bye.